0: God's house, from John chapter two verses 12 to 25. In the passage this morning we've traversed now from Cana of Galilee that we looked at last week to Capernaum in the north, all the way down and then we'll go all the way down to Jerusalem for the time of the Passover, Jesus will cleanse the temple. Before we get into the passage I know what some of you are probably thinking if you've never thought about this before you're certainly going to be thinking about it this morning. Why do the other gospels the synoptic gospels have the cleansing of the temple in the last week of Jesus' ministry and here we have it at the beginning. Hmm, I never thought about that. Now, there are some, and perhaps with good reason, who hold that there are, they are one and the same event. Now, this belief is not wrong, because we know that John arranges events according to, he follows themes more than he follows chronology even though sometimes he does both, obviously. But it is more than likely that Jesus cleansed the temple on two different occasions. There are some differences, some marked differences between the way that John describes it, the event and the way that the other Gospels do, the other three Gospels. And is that, could it be that Jesus indeed did the temple on two occasions? Well, it is entirely possible. There is the instance where Jesus performed similar actions on two different occasions. For example, he fed the 4,000, he fed the 5,000 and on another occasion he fed 4,000. They're very similar but they are different. The same situation faces us here. That he did it twice, I suppose he's further confirmation of his zeal for God's house. Just how seriously he understood the situation. One at the beginning of his ministry, the other one at the end. Both happening at Passover. And so they serve in a way like, like bookends to what Jesus came to do. So let's look at verse 12, relaxing. After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and there he stayed for a few days. This ancient village of Capernaum was located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The name Capernaum means, in Hebrew means the village of Nahum or village of comfort. This village would... In the years of Jesus' ministry, this village, this place would become the base for Jesus' ministry. So as the name suggests, a village of comfort, Jesus is here taking a bit of a break. The disciples, however, spare a thought for them, they're pumped. In full anticipation, they're probably thinking, wow, the miracle at Cana was incredible. It was unbelievable. If this is a sample of what Jesus can do, then we are, how, we're going to have an exciting time. But as they arrive in this quiet village by the Sea of Galilee, the pace slows down. There are no miracles. That follow. Instead, the days are spent in meditation and discussion, group discussion, perhaps. And I can visualize the disciples sort of growing a little bit impatient. Now, earlier this year I was at the town of Capernaum, so I'm just going to show some, some photos. As you enter into the into the village, this is a sign that you find in the front of a Capernaum, the town of Jesus. At the time of Jesus, there would have been about 3,000 people that lived there, so it wasn't a little tin pot place, you know, back somewhere. 3,000 people is, is quite a good number. And uh, it wasn't, if you picture just these, I don't know, these mud huts and uh, straw villages type of things, that's not really what Capernaum was like there was already a synagogue there there was you can see these structures there was a Roman garrison already stationed there uh, so it wasn't that quiet of a place but all the houses are butted up together there's not a lot of, lot of room and as you can see the, the construction there and uh, lastly that is the, the view just across the lake, right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee at sunset. You find yourself taking some some and r there. There's a principle for us here. I know that we all think that we got God worked out. What are we going to learn? But we don't. We don't have God worked out. God does what he wants when God wants. He's got his own schedule of when to do things and that includes your life and mine. Hurry up, Lord. Come on, let's, let's get things done. Like, I need this stuff done yesterday. What are you doing? No, just piano, piano. Take it easy. Relax a little bit. The time will come. An offering, we have our own schedule and we bring it up to God of when we want things done and all of that. When God's plan comes into conflict with our own plans and our own goals and all of that, we struggle. We're getting patient. We need to trust God. He knows best. In the meantime, you pray, you wait for God. The temple markets, verses 13 to 14, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves and other, sitting, other people sitting at tables exchanging money. If you go to Jerusalem today, it's a, it's a hectic place. There's tourist buses everywhere. There are different groups. You know, you, want to be at a place and just take a bit of time, uh, just back to Capernaum. When we arrived there, there was already half a dozen buses, tourist buses already offloading their people and and, and our tourist guy trying to find a little spot where he can sort of gather us together and explain a little bit about the place. That was Capernaum. Can you imagine what Jerusalem is like? There's buses and people and trying to sell you something and all that. That is Now, in that time, people from all over the diaspora, the the dispersion of the Jews all over the place, they would come to Jerusalem. From a small place, the population could blow up to one million, one and a half million people as people came for the Passover celebration. It was a special religious pilgrimage It was also described as the festival of freedom. As we know, it looked back, this Passover, it looked back to the time when God had freed the Jews from their slavery in Egypt. It was a time of both solemn remembrance but also a time of joy, of celebration for what God had done. Now this is now the second Passover that is recorded for us in the Gospels. The first is recorded in Luke when Jesus was 12 years old. At that time Jesus was approaching, and you might have heard the word, his Bar Mitzvah, the time when he would become the son of the covenant. And when he was 12 years old, his parents came and they lost him amongst all the people, the crowds of people, and it's not that hard to do. But they found him. Where did they find him? They found him in the temple. What was he doing? He was doing, he was about his father's business. He is now an adult, around about 30 years of age, and once again he is doing his father's work. He is about his father's business. This time he stands on the threshold of his public ministry and presents himself before the Jews. Why now? Well, the answer lies in the true meaning of the Passover itself. On the one hand, the Passover looked back to the freeing of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. On the other hand, the Passover looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the King of Israel, to free His people once more from their oppressors, the Romans. If God had freed His people once, He will free them again. But even after the people made the real sacrifice, get there we know that getting having a trip to the Holy Land these days can be quite expensive it's not an easy thing to do but you can imagine what it would have been like in those days but even after the people got there they could only because the temple was the centre of why they went there they, they were only able to go so far the court of the Gentiles was the only area where a lot of the, those who call themselves Jews but were uncircumcised Gentiles. They, they, they wanted to be part of Judaism, but they were uncircumcised. Therefore, they were not permitted to go further. They had to stay in the Gentile courts. They couldn't get closer than that. So these were the Gentiles who, were, who wanted to worship God but they had to stay back. And here as they approach the temple they would see a sign posted at each of the gates to the temple and the sign warned them that if you go past if you're a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile, if you go past this point then you're gonna die. That death is the penalty. And this is a sign that they actually found they excavated this and they actually found it recently. This is an actual sign from that time of the, the warning signs. Do not go past this point, basically, it said. You know, trespassers will be not just prosecuted but shot, basically. If you were, however, a conservative Orthodox Jew you could go in you could get a lot closer and there was a bit of a discrimination going on because the court of the Gentiles was considered a not so holy place and because it was considered a not so holy place then we could use that place for other things serve on practical levels for the needs of these worshippers. You see, in past times, the the Jews conducted this buying and selling of everything to do with the temple, with the sacrifices, the animals and the money changing and all of that outside of the temple precinct. It was done on the streets surrounding the the temple and, and even down into the Kidron Valley. Which the Kidron Valley sort of stands in between the the walls of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. That's sort of the valley. But in recent times, it was more it was it was deemed to be more convenient to bring these merchants inside the court of the Gentiles. Let's not have it in the streets out there. Let's let's corner of the market. Let's control the franchise business here so we can get a bit of a cut. Obviously, the practical aspect was that it made worship a lot more user-friendly. Now, they, wouldn't, they would not have dreamed of conducting these type of businesses inside of the inner courts of the temple. But it was okay, as far as they were concerned, to conduct it in the Gentile courts. For them, you see, Gentile worship was less worthy than their own worship. They were already putting barriers for the people coming to God. And this upset Jesus. There was more to this that upset Jesus. The pilgrims coming from foreign lands were unable to utilise their own foreign currency for worship. One of the reasons was because it had the the face of Caesar and we can't have that. So they were required to change their money into the Jewish currency. Naturally, the exchange rate went up was marked up significantly so that the money changers could make money and then as part of that the priests and others would also get their cut from the profit. If you've been to the footy you know what I'm talking about. Whether it's the ANZ Stadium or Allianz or wherever it is. Yes, You can try and take your own drinks and sandwiches and burgers and all that type of stuff. But now they check everything you take in there. And they they, they do offer you practical reasons for bombs and all that type of stuff. Uh, And you get to the footy and you go with your son, your daughter, we go with the kids, mum and dad and all that. And you see the prices of the burger and chips and the drinks and the cues of the people trying to buy them. And you're saying, nah, I think we'll just go without. Thank you. Dad, I don't want some. Oh, okay. It costs an arm and a leg. Like $8 burgers or something, suddenly, you know, $20. Outside, you can buy a can of coke for a dollar. Inside, at least three, four dollars. Imagine, on top of that, on top of the expensive food, if when you went into the stadium, you had you couldn't use currency, the local currency. You had to buy a token as you walked in. Oh, you want to buy stuff inside? Well, you have to buy these tokens in order to so. Not only are the tokens expensive, but then you, you have to use those to buy the expensive food. That's how they cornered the market. And where, was it, where was it all going? Well, it was going into the coffers of the temple and their priests. My goodness, this is exactly how a lot of religious stuff goes on these days. Isn't Facebook. We we're looking at uh, a preacher in the U.S. who apparently God told him he's got to raise money for a for his new jet. He's got other jets, but it's a, it's a $70 million jet that God had told him to buy. I would love a $70 million jet. We'd go out to the bush. Could do all of that. But let's be realistic. Just getting an economy seat is a, is a real blessing these days. I would be happy with an economy seat. I don't care what you call it—cattle class, call it whatever you want. Well, they just get me there. No, we need a private jet. A lot of this stuff goes on, and even as you go outside of Jerusalem, you, you, these days everybody's trying to sell you something—you know, a little uh, chain, a cross, uh, this or that. It, it goes on. It's all related to the to the business around temple. There's a lot of money in religious business that goes on. But you're playing with people's hearts. You're playing with their devotion. You are putting, you're starting to put barriers in the the access that people have to God. And this stuff just enraged Jesus. I know where they do it. I know why. They offer drinks and food and all of that stuff and they were selling, you know, offering the animals and all of that because it's really hard dragging the animals all the way 50 kilometers. Can you imagine dragging a cow all the way to Jerusalem, up and down the hill? Let's just go and buy it there. It's a matter of convenience. Don't worry about the doves. They got them at the temple, okay? You don't have to breed them throughout the year. Let's just Buy them at the temple for the sacrifices, okay? Okay, Dad, let's just do that. It's a matter of convenience. You know, much of what in our world started out as a matter of convenience quickly descends into something else, even irreverence. For example, in many parts of Africa, they mourn the dead for seven days. They come and go from the house. I told you this. For Seven days. The mourning process, the grieving process goes on. And here uh, in Australia, when somebody dies and we go to their funeral, you, you might take time off work or whatever for maybe half a day. Say goodbye to pay your last respects to a dear one or a friend or somebody from work half a day that that'd be a lot wouldn't it well years ago in louisiana uh, they started the first driving mortuary i read for the convenience of time pressed mourners mourners who are time pressed okay the deceased is displayed in a picture window, and friends and relatives can drive up to the window and pay the last respect without getting out of the car. The reason was convenience. It's not just, it's not just you know, for, for funeral houses that this is, this is going to be. A, I reckon this is going to take off pretty soon. Like a drive-through Maccas. Right? <laughs> like a drive-through churches. Okay? Here, you'll all be in your cars right now. All right? And uh, we just plug it in or, or something, and what would you like? Or oh, just, a, just a light sermon, you know, not too heavy. Not the usual 40-minute one. Just, you know, just a five-minute. That'll be great. Thank you. Would you like communion with that? Yeah, that'd be great. What type of songs? You, know, you just use your songs and say, yeah, the, the happy, clappy stuff, that'd be great. Yeah. It, it just, can you see? It's a matter of convenience. And. and A lot of what we know of biblical Christianity, what it's supposed to be, is dismissed today simply because it is inconvenient. Since when has obeying Jesus, taking up the cross, highly inconvenient, by the way, much easier to just carry a cross on on your neck like this rather than carrying the cross on your back, And following him, since when has being a disciple of Jesus ever been a matter of convenience? never has been. For true Christians, true disciples, it never will be. Jesus is disruptive. Following him is inconvenient. That's the whole point. I come to take over everything. Then he starts the cleanup, verses 15 to 17. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, scattered the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. For those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered of ill for your house will consume me. Um, Now some evangelicals feel uncomfortable at the story of the wedding of Cana where Jesus turned 600 litres of water into 600 litres of fantastic wine. It wasn't grape juice, it was wine. In the same manner, here, you know, we, we, we have a picture of the gentle Jesus sort of cuddling a, a little lamb, that type of stuff. We, we're comfortable with that picture of, of Jesus gently leading his sheep down the green meadows next to the water. The Lord is my shepherd, top of Jesus. Gently, softly spoken, calm demeanour. And even as he talks to the religious authorities, he's got it all together. He never loses his temper. So therefore, if there is a picture of Jesus, it's hard for us, in this account, to see in Jesus a picture of mercy and love that we sort of get accustomed to. Rather, the picture we get here is Jesus with his sleeves rolled up, ready for a fight, with a whip in his hands. Now, different artists over the years have portrayed Jesus almost like an anemic 50-kilogram weakling, you know? But such a picture is is inconsistent with what we read here. This man was a carpenter by trade. He was a craftsman, a construction worker. No power tools then, everything done by hand. This sweet, gentle Jesus wades into the crowded mob of people. He's swinging his whip driving out the merchants and overturning the, the tables from the temple. He charged through the temple with all its ornaments and all the tables and all the different things that were being sold like a bull in a china shop. The scene was chaotic. And all of this at the height of the Passover season. city full of pilgrims gathered to commemorate God's delivering mercies. Here is Jesus, an angry Jesus, delivering his people from a stale religious life. A stale religious practice that had gone way, way off course. He was consumed by the zeal for his house. And that is a quotation from Psalm 69, which is a a messianic psalm quoted in other parts of of Scripture. The zeal for his house consumed him. It upset him. And and eventually it it would take his life because that was one of the accusations at his trial. It was false, but it was. if Jesus walked in here this morning, what would he say? What would he say about our grumblings, our worship, our thoughts, our attitudes? Would he be pleased? Would he let us stay? Or would he drive us out? Let's remember, let's remember that the pagan world of that day was full of idolatry. was full of idolatry. There were, you know, one of the things in our, in our travel through the, the Holy Land is that there were all these already, even at the time of the temple, there were already all these Greek temples being built. Roman temples, Greek temples. They were all over the place. So, it's, it's not as if not far from the Jerusalem temple that they were all separate from everything else no it was all there all the pagan worship was readily accessible don't you think that Jesus could have gone and targeted those got in there with a whip perhaps and drove all those pagan worshippers out why did he have to go at his own people why what about them no. But what about all the injustice, all the immorality, all the corruption with the Romans and everything else? Why are you targeting us? But Jesus didn't turn his anger toward any of these areas. He went to the temple. The reason for this is because judgment must always begin house of God. Why? Because they are the people of God and they are supposed to know better. And the longer you hear the truth proclaimed, don't grow accustomed to the truth. Let it hit you every time. Let it change you. Let it mould you but it shapes you into God's image. Because the more comfortable you become, the more convenient it becomes, the more able you are to dismiss this or dismiss that. Don't dismiss it. You are part of God's house. You're God's people. The longer you hear truth proclaimed, the more responsible you will be when you stand before God. I'm not making this stuff up. This is what Peter tells us new testament in his epistle he says in 1 peter 4:17 to 18 for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of god and if it begins with us first what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of god and if it is with difficulty that the religious are saved what will become of the godless man and the sinner What will become of them? This is why judgment always begins with God's house. God will always hold us up to a higher standard. God always expects more from His servants than those who aren't. It's just the way it is. Just imagine a household with your kids, your sons and daughters and having a hard word to your children, and then your kid says, well, hang on, why don't you talk to the neighbor's kid? Well, they're not my kids. You're my child. That's exactly what it's like with God's house. God's children. His authority, verses 18 to 22. Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? The temple he was speaking about was his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered this. And they believe the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. In the aftermath of the mayhem and, and all of that that had happened, the authorities obviously would have something to say to Jesus. Interesting that they do not challenge Jesus on the basis of his action. Maybe deep inside they already felt that. Things had gotten way out of hand already, and maybe we did need a clean up anyway. But they challenged him on the basis of his authority. What gives you the right? What sign can you show us? Where are your credentials? Uh, do you ha- have any PhDs in cleaning temples? Uh, Today, I suppose to some extent, we we have a similar situation. We still struggle to hear someone preach or when we go to a conference, we want to know the background of the speaker and, you know, what story he has and what does he believe and all that type of stuff and where was he educated, what are their credentials. Unless they have some qualifications or something, some, from some acceptable institution, then I'm going, to be, I'm going to be suspicious. Now there are obvious practical reasons we do this because there's a lot of loonies out there, especially ones that want to buy a $70 million plane. But in having that attitude of dismissing everything then we can miss out on a lot as well. A lot of good. John the Baptist didn't come from any religious institution. Jesus didn't. The disciples didn't. They were fishermen. Just to bring a little bit modern. C.H. Spurgeon didn't. Oh, they all came from Called by God, to do this amazing work. God's spirit was upon him. And Jesus responds with a sign, with a sign of destruction. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now some background here I suppose is necessary that the temple began to be built at in 20 BC when Herod the Great began the rebuilding of the Original temple that was destroyed and by now these building projects had been going on and on and on for 46 years and they were still not completed after 46 years. So how long are we, are we going to wait for Denham Court? 46 years? Getting close. <laughs> Forty-six years with the construction going on. Now, just to throw something else there, they would not be finished until 64 AD. They would still, the project will still continue for another 34 years or more. And, and ironically, in God's justice. They were destroyed only six years after they were completed. All that time to build it, and it was only fully completed and lasted six years before the events of the Romans' destruction of the place. Therefore, Jesus' answer is interesting, isn't it? That it is a declaration, and he's speaking both. You know, the destruction. Two possible words that Jesus could have used when he referred to the word temple. Yeros was the most common word for temple. It was used to describe the entire temple area. The inner sanctuary, the outer courts, that's the word that is used in verses 14 and 15. All of that, the whole of the temple ground. But naos is a more specific term. Naos is, is used in, in the New Testament when it refers to the The inner part of the temple, the holy place where only the priests were allowed to enter. And it is this second word, naos, that Jesus uses here about that which will be destroyed. The only thing, the only sign that Jesus will give them is the sign that involves the Holy of Holies. On the one hand, it involves a cross. On the other hand, it involves a resurrection. Of course, both his body and the temple would be destroyed. One raised after three days and the other never rebuilt. But the Orthodox Jews do believe that before the coming of the Messiah, that the temple would be rebuilt. That's what they still believe. But in Christ our worship is deepened. A new place where God can be found. He is the temple. In chapter 1 verse 14 we read those marvellous words and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there is, is literally tabernacled among us goes back to the desert where God's presence was there in the midst of his people this is the word of god becoming flesh there's the key it is our it is our relationship with jesus it's in our relationship with jesus that we are in christ that we are in the father that we get to meet god it is within the church the gathering of god's people the temple of god and that when God's people come together, He is in our midst. And just as Jesus took seriously the neglect of the temple, so also God takes seriously a neglect of the church. 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17 Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If a man destroys the temple of God, God will him for the temple of god is holy and that is what you are and finally more signs verses 23 to 25 now while he was in jerusalem at the passover festival many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name but jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people he did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. While Jesus would not oblige the requests for signs from the authorities, Jesus did do many other signs amongst the people. The the Gospel of John doesn't tell us what they are, but we know John tells us later on that Jesus did so many more things than what we've been able to record. The people are impressed and believed certain signs. But Jesus is not as enthusiastic about their response. He did not, it says here, he did not entrust himself to them. The word believe in verse 23 and the, and the word entrust in verse 24 are actually the same word. The people believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Is basically what it's saying. Perhaps they believed in Jesus for their own convenience. For what they could get out of Jesus. Perhaps we could more appropriately call them unsaved believers. Unsaved believers. You believe in God? Good. Even the demons believe and tremble. Believing in God is not enough people believed in Jesus. He did not believe in them. He knew what was in their heart. He knew their intentions. This is powerful stuff. It is one thing to respond to a miracle. It is something else to take up a cross and to follow him. Despite what they said or did, Jesus knew something much deeper. Where was their heart? We, we know the story of Nathaniel. Nathaniel was known by Jesus long before Nathaniel knew Jesus. And then we're going to look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus and, and Jesus knows a lot more about Nicodemus than Nicodemus knows about Jesus. The woman at the well, Jesus knows a lot more about the woman at the well long before the woman gets to know Jesus. Let me leave you with this. Do we know Jesus? Do we know Jesus, our Saviour? Do we believe in Him because it is a matter of convenience or because He is our Lord and our Saviour? serve Him and carry our cross as He calls us to do. We've seen enough signs and wonders. We've seen enough of His love. What more evidence do you want how much He truly does love us? And with that, we conclude our our message and we move on to communion. So let me just lead you in a word Dear Lord, as we come before you, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. That you know our hearts. You know our need. You know our intentions. I pray, dear Lord, that you will continue to work in our lives. Even though we do believe, help our unbelief. Lift our faith of Christ.